And it happens to be the context of our passage this morning. If you turn in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we'll pick up in verse 35. As we once again continue our journey here in Luke's Gospel, chapter and verse, all the way through in its entirety, skipping nothing, taking everything, as the Lord speaks these things to us. And a message that I've entitled, Jesus is coming soon. Amen? If you're here this morning and you're in Jesus, you ought to be really excited about Jesus coming soon. Amen? Because when you look at our world, there's not a lot to hope in. If you're hoping in this world, then your hope is in vain. And in fact, as we look at our world, if we're honest... We have to say not only are things not getting better, but they're getting substantially worse. And so this morning, the Lord Jesus continues, and he has just finished speaking to the disciples and to the multitude. And in saying what he has said, he brings us to this point, because if you remember, he left us with, we need to have an eternal perspective, amen? Living for the right kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom to come. It is His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so He begins now to lay out for us a very clear eternal perspective. One that for us is the body of Christ as we realize that this world is not our home. We're passing through. One day... The Lord Jesus Himself is going to call His church home. The church age will be over. Daniel's 70th week will begin. The world will come under unprecedented times of evil. We'll be at home in heaven with the Lord Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then, He's coming again. The second time, he's coming as a conquering king. He'll be holding in his hand the title deed to the earth itself. And he'll be coming to claim what is rightfully his. And so the Lord Jesus reminds us not to be woeful, worldly worrywarts. Amen? As we saw last time. Because it's easy to do. You can look at the world and go, man, I need to worry about this. I need to worry about that because I ain't got none of that. I don't have any of those. There's none of those things in my life. People get caught up on all the stuff that this world has to offer. And again, I remind you, God's not against stuff per se. He's against you making stuff your God and hoping in this world. Because if you're hoping in this world... Your world one day is going to melt. It it is going to, with fervent heat, be destroyed. And then he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And those who will be there will be those who are righteous in Christ Jesus, having received the final reward. And you want to be a part of that group. And so this morning, we'll pick up in verse 35. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the promise of heaven. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that one day the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised, 
And we who are alive and remain will meet you in the air. Lord, we look forward to that Harpazo event. Lord, the rapture of the church. When you call us home. Lord, we can't wait. We realize that there are so many people who do not know you. And so the age of grace lingers. The time of the church age remains. But we know you will not tarry forever. And we have that glorious, wonderful hope of the appearing of our great God and King. And so this morning as we study your word, help us to focus on eternity. We give you this time, Lord, just open up our hearts to receive your engrafted word. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 35, and so in light of... Storing up your treasure in heaven, amen, not on earth where moth and rust can destroy. Again, very important, keep it in context. Peter's going to interrupt this little sermon, but it is a continuous thought. So the focus is eternity. The focus is in heaven. So let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Keep that in view. You, you see, we have a tough time because us guys and, and, and men, please in Jesus' name, don't wear a dress to church next week. But back then, men kind of wore things that resembled what we would call a dress, a long skirt. It was a tunic. And that tunic went down past their knees. And in fact, if you were attending anything that was religious in nature from a Jewish perspective, you weren't supposed to have your knees exposed. And so they would cover their knees and it would be down very near their ankles. So in order to do anything, they had to gird up their loins. They had to gather that up and they would pull it up and they would tuck the top of that skirt into the waistband so that they could get something done. And so the picture here is, let your waist be girded and your lamp. Who is the light of the world today? It's the church, amen? The church is the light in the world today. Jesus said to the disciples, I'm leaving you and you are now the light of the world. You're the visible reflection of Jesus. Lamps don't burn too well if they're out of batteries. They don't have any oil. We, we, most of us, probably some of you, because we live in the mountains, we're kind of weird. You probably have a few oil lamps sitting around someplace. We have some at the house. Those lamps don't do you a bit of good if you don't have any oil for them, amen? You like, all you do is smoke out your house. You try and burn that wick with nothing in it. It needs oil. And it also has to have a wick in it that's suitable for drawing that oil up. And the whole picture is someone who's filled with the Spirit of God, who's on fire with the cause of Christ, and is ready to do some work. And so he says, your lamp's burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. When he'll return from the wedding, get the picture here, because it's very, very poignant, and it's very specific. Because this is how we determine which of the two comings the Lord Jesus is talking about. And he says to return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, that they may be open to him immediately. And so the Lord Jesus sets in these first couple of verses before us the picture of what he's talking about. He's saying, look, guys, you need to be ready. You need to be living for the right world. You need to be living for the world that Jesus is in right now. Amen? Where is he? He's in heaven. 
He's returned there. He's gone to prepare a place for you as his disciples. And in fact, so much so, he said, I would tell you if it were not so, but I'm telling you it's so. I go to prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house are many dwelling places, many mansions. Y'all got one. If you're hearing Jesus this morning, every one of you, you didn't know this, maybe, you got a mansion. Maybe you're living in one of those, you know, the older running springs homes. They're kind of like homes. They're more like tents, actually, some of them, but they're kind of like homes. But this world's not your home. And your treasure is laid up somewhere else beyond the blue. And one day you're going to receive that new mansion in glory. And you're going to be where he is. And so right now we're supposed to be living as though we're there. You get the picture? Heavenly living now expectantly for later. Jesus is going to teach us this morning the great doctrine of the imminency of the return of the Lord. Something that we as the church need to lay hold of in a new and a fresh way. Because I think a whole bunch of the church has fallen asleep. They're no longer looking for the return of the Lord. They're looking for the same dumb stuff that the world's looking for. They're looking for the next financial thing, the next housing thing, the next work thing, the next career thing. They're looking for things, and they're not looking for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord of Glory. We need to start looking for Jesus. Because the way the world's going right now, you might be seeing your Savior really soon. And so he begins by saying, look, I'm coming back. You don't want to be ashamed. That passage there in 1 John reminds us we don't want to do that. I don't want to be ashamed when the Lord comes back. When the trumpet sounds, I want to be ready to go, having done all the stand, exactly as my Bible says. And unfortunately, there's a lot of the church that's doing nothing to stand. Matter of fact, they're so not doing anything to stand that they might as well be doing exactly what Psalm 1 says not to do. They're sitting in the seat of the scornful. They're following after the wrong things for the wrong reason. And so this morning, this is an encouragement to us. We need to get busy about our Father's business. Amen? How many of you have people in your life that you know for a fact are not saved? Raise your hand. I think that's pretty much every hand here. So you have a job to do. They need to know about the king. You need to gird up your loins and get busy. Because I don't know how much time is left. If the rapture were to happen today, how many billions on this planet would be able to to miss that event Perhaps to some degree because we've been unfaithful with the light. Because we've not been salt as we should be. And so the Lord speaks to us. We need to be working when He comes. We're not just waiting for Him. We ought to be working. That means our loins girded up. So pull up that skirt, tuck it in, and get ready to run. That's the picture. You ever noticed how track athletes take their warm-ups off before they get in the starting blocks? Same picture. You're not going to see somebody out there because sweats are normally baggy, amen? They're to keep you warm. Traps a little bit of air next to your body, so they're a little loose-fitting. 
They're also not very aerodynamic. If you've been paying any attention to the Olympic Games the last few years, the big rage is trying to make things more aerodynamic now. They're running in full suits, skin-tight stuff, swimsuits that are illegal because they make little tiny bubbles on your back so that you can go faster through the water. That's the picture. We should be investing in going faster and further, not seeing if we can kind of tarry until he gets here, but working, doing something for the kingdom. Now, am I telling all of you that if you're not starting a church tomorrow, or if you're not in Bible college, or if you're not going somewhere and doing something, you know, you're in the mission field, am I telling you you're in sin? Of course not. But I guarantee you, every last one of us can do more for the king. Every one of us. I was so convicted myself as I was preparing this message, like, Lord, am I giving you everything I've got? Am I looking at these things through fresh lenses? I've taught this passage five or six different times over the last nearly three decades. I've taught its companion passage in the rest of the Gospels several times. I know what it says. But am I living what it says? Am I girded up? Am I ready to get to work? That's the question for us. Notice it says light's burning. So you want to be working and you want to be witnessing. Amen? Now, I I will tell you that most people, the moment, if I were to put a bulletin insert in and say, we're going to go witnessing this Saturday, I I don't want to blow any of y'all's cover, but here's the deal. Not too many of you are going to show up because people are afraid of witnessing. I'm going to have to share the gospel. You'll be grabbing a four spiritual laws track. You'll be reviewing it and you'll show up. That's not what's being talked about here. It's your life shining for Christ wherever you are. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing. It isn't something that you do. It's something that you are. We wake up every day and we have an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. You can do it in the store, you can do it at the gas station, you can do it in school, you can do it at work, you can do it in your neighborhood. You can witness wherever you are and whatever you're doing. You put those two things together and you get get to work witnessing, amen? Gird up, get going. Tell somebody about Jesus. Invite them to church. Did you know that over 80% of all people who ever attend church got a personal invitation from someone else to go to church? It's not me. It's not the sign out there on the highway. It's not our website. It's you saying, look, have you ever been to church? My pastor is absolutely insane. You should come hear him. I don't care what you say to get him here. They'll probably agree with you. He's loony about Jesus. He's just come and see this crazy person. Invite him because we got awesome worship. Maybe they won't come for the message. Maybe they'll come because we have some awesome music. Invite him to church. Maybe they won't come to either of those things, but they'll come when we have a dinner out in the parking lot. Invite them to church. 
Share with them the good news of the gospel. And so he begins by saying, look, let's gird ourselves up. And of course, the most famous of all the passages in the entire New Testament is found there in Ephesians chapter 6. Because we're to be girded with the truth. Amen? It's part of your armor. When you gird up, you're sticking everything you have. All the work that you do is the truth of God's Word. You want to tell them the truth. And so he goes on now. Notice the watching for the Lord. There's a great promise here. It begins in verse 37. Probably one of the greatest in the entire Bible. Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when He comes, will find watching. Man, I want to be one of those. Are your eyes so focused on eternal things that you find yourself looking up? Even in actuality looking up. We had one of those days, uh, last, I think it was last week, we had kind of some clouds, it looked like there was going to be some thunderstorms, and, and I found myself gazing up at the clouds, going, man, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus poked his head through those clouds? Are you watching? Are you looking for, as Titus 2 says, and hastening the appearing of our great God and King? Are you, are you that excited about Jesus coming back? Talk to anyone in here who's walked with the Lord for a while. You're going to find out that as we get older, we get more and more excited about Jesus coming back. Because we get less and less excited about being here. Amen? Think about it. God made the world that way, so you get a little sick and tired of it. Ready to go home. I can't wait to get there. I enjoy being here. I got plans for this afternoon, I think. Might barbecue something, burn some meat. I don't know. I'm not saying check out from life. I'm saying check in to your heavenly reward. Look. I I want to be found watching. I was looking for you, Jesus. I'm excited about you coming back. For assuredly I say to you that he will gird himself, and to them they will sit down and eat, and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour when the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into, and therefore you also be ready." For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Amen? It's this incredible picture of the way we ought to live our lives. Now, he has two basic thoughts that are in view here. And there are two future comings of the Lord. And we need to be prepared for that time. There are things that we need to be doing That's what it means to be busy about our Father's business. Amen? The things of God. The things the Lord would have you do. 
And again, it doesn't mean that you check. It doesn't mean you quit your job and go stand on a hill someplace. That's all been tried, by the way. And it usually makes you look like an idiot. Standing out there on the hillside with your hands in the air, pretty soon you start getting hungry, and then you gotta change your robes, cause you, you know, it's just not gonna work out well. It's not talking about date setting, I'll give you a little more on that in a minute. But expectantly looking for the Lord to return. For the rapture of the church, for God to sound that trumpet. And so he says to us, there's this great promise. And in that great promise, you need to be greatly prepared. Two things that we need to be busy about. Charles Spurgeon actually called this the greatest promise in the Bible. And it is an indication of how greatly the Lord has loved his people from day one. He says, I'm coming back. Don't you fret. Don't worry. And throughout the church age, the last 2,000 years, Throughout the church age, every single person who has ever named Jesus Christ as Lord has been able to look to this promise and say, you know what, today might be the day my Savior comes. And so it gives us great hope. It's a constant source of hope for us. So he begins to unfold it for us. And, of course, he's talking about two future comings here, one of which we know is the rapture of the church, the second of which, uh, in, in wonder of wonders, in our great uh, amazing ability, it, it, we call it very creatively the second coming, because it's the second time. You, you see, the first coming is for the church. You need to get this. The first one is for the church. It's for us. It ends the church age. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 19. It's what we know as the harpazo, the rapturo in Latin. It means to be caught up, snatched away by force. Drawn out of this world. God's done with the age of grace. We're going home. We don't have a clue when that's going to happen. It will be instantaneous. We who are alive and remain, that passage says, will be caught up to meet Him in the air. It's not here, it's up there. And it will be invisible, and it will happen with the church and for the church. That's the first one. The second one, however, is a whole different ball of wax. And that is for those who are left on this earth. Those who manage to make it through that most hideous of all times of humankind that we know is the tribulation. And we're given some clues as to when those things will happen. And in fact, in Daniel chapter 9, specifically in the 27th verse, it tells us that in the middle of the week, after the Antichrist has set up his image in the temple, uh, that exactly 1260 days after he does that, breaks his covenant with the nation Israel, that the Lord will return. Except this time, he's coming with the church. Y'all are coming back with him. And the picture there is that we have been in heaven. And so as you read your Bible specifically, and we'll elaborate on this more at a later date, 
you look at the first six chapters of the book of Revelation, you find God talking about all that will happen in those last days, the churches being described throughout the church history, that final church, the lukewarm church, the church at Laodicea, and then he goes on to begin talking about the things that will happen on this earth absent the church. From chapter 6 to 19, you find nowhere the church even mentioned. Because during that time, the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation of days, during that time the church will be in heaven. At the event described in Revelation chapter 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Finally, the bridegroom gathers his bride. And so the reason that this passage is so important to us is as we look at it, we can then understand what the Lord's talking about. He's saying, look, there's going to be some folks that are going to be left. If they had been listening, if they'd been paying attention, if they had understood what was being said, they would have been prepared. They would have not gone through this terrible time. And so when the Lord comes again, that day will be known, but not the hour. We're told when it's going to happen. But we're coming with him for that event. And notice it says here, the fourth watch is really kind of the watch that's in view. And it's a terrible reference, and it becomes very easy to look at it from the standpoint of the doctrines that we call eschatology, those things, those last day's events. As the Lord speaks to us this morning, he's saying, look, this event happens during that terrible night season. The Antichrist is going to rise up. Church isn't going to be here. The whole world's going to come unglued for a period of time. And interestingly enough, if you look at an Oriental wedding, a Near Eastern wedding, a wedding from the time of Jesus, Anybody know how long that period of time was from the bride and the groom getting together until the wedding was over? It's exactly a week. That week will be in heaven with the bridegroom because we are his bride. And so he says he's coming back. He mentions next the nature of his coming. It's actually quite simple. And know this, it says there in verse 39, because there are going to be some servants of the Lord during that tribulation period. They'll be left here on earth. I believe there will be a radical revival on earth during the tribulation. And here's why. We're going to leave a whole bunch of empty churches with a whole bunch of Bibles. And people are going to look at the witness that you had because you will have girded your loins and you will have witness to the world. And then all of a sudden, you aren't here anymore. And they're all going, uh-oh, they were right. And then for three and a half years, as the Antichrist unfolds his sinister plan on this earth. He launches a new world order, a single world government a single world monetary system, and a single 
world religion. And it just makes everybody loony happy. Well, finally, the Christians are gone. This new ruler we have, he is super inclusive. And he's really tolerant. And he's radically, politically correct. And look, I mean, we've got no more problems. I mean, we've got everybody believes everything that everybody else believes. we got no religious problems on earth. Until the middle of the week. Halfway through. And then the Antichrist shows his true colors. Had they known what hour the thief would come, they would have watched. They wouldn't have suffered that their house would be broken into. But now they're going to get to see exactly what he's made out of. And it's not good. It will be warfare unleashed on the earth like we have never seen. And it seems somewhat strange to me when I talk to people about these things in a biblical sense, how they can think possibly that the Second World War fulfilled this particular uh, viewpoint, or that the accumulation of all of the wars that have ever occurred uh, could somehow satisfy what Scripture says about these terrible days. Family of God, your Bible says that two-thirds of the population of the world will be wiped out in those days. That would be billions of people will die. Hasn't happened yet. So as the church is home in heaven, as we have gathered together with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as we're sitting at that banquet, the whole time the world is spinning. And the whole time the world says, finally, we got rid of the Christians. And then the Antichrist breaks his covenant. You know it is the abomination of the desolation. That image that's set up in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And he says, enough. And he begins to wage war on absolutely everyone and everything. His true colors come out. In the meantime, Jesus is missing nothing. And family, that's why Hebrews 10 says we're not to forsake the gathering together of the saints. Because the world thinks that we're the problem. Right now there is a huge push in our world to do away with the church. Just get rid of the church, we wouldn't have any problems. We just all become Islamo-Buddhists or something, you know. And everybody just get together and we'll just all have one world religion. That's exactly what the Antichrist will do. The world will be mad with rage, with lust for power and anguish. The, the killings will ensue. And in the midst of all that, Jesus says, look, I told you this was going to happen. You should have known. He's coming. Notice the third thing here as he begins to work through all of this. And then Peter said to him, you can always count on Peter and being perfect in his timing. 
Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all the people? And the Lord said, they're kind of getting this picture. They're going, man, really? Notice how Jesus responds to it in verse 42. And then the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household and give them their portion of food in due season? He says, Who is it that actually thrives in this environment? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Witnessing and working. Getting the job done. And truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Isn't that the issue? Isn't that where mankind has fallen into grave trouble? Isn't that where... Frankly, a vast majority of cults have gotten their theological standing. Isn't that, in fact, where most people find an issue with the church? Ah, you guys have been talking about the return of Jesus for 2,000 years. That's a bunch of hogwash. Isn't going to happen. There's a lot of people in church that have that view. There are a lot of people who've been well taught that have that view. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. Do you get the picture? The imminency of the return of Jesus Christ is supposed to send us towards the character of Jesus. In holiness, in holy living. In sanctifying us unto that end. Not becoming exactly like the world. And during that time it was a literal beating. In our day and time it's taking advantage of other people. Stealing from them, if you will, causing them to, to be ripped off in the marketplace and in the public place. How many people have sold their soul for the sake of getting ahead in this world which is perishing? Notice eating and drinking and being drunk kind of sounds like the party lifestyle that is the word of the day. I, I was shocked. I was watching the basketball game last night. I, I, I admit it, I'm, I'm addicted. <laughs> Go Spurs. But I'm watching the basketball game, and I'm sitting here watching these food commercials, and, and, and I will share with you just, it, this is how insane it is. That now... Carl's Jr. has a commercial that shows all these roosters running to a Carl's Jr. because they're, they're saying everybody likes big breasts. Why am I saying that to you? That's how messed up our world is. You can't sell a stupid chicken sandwich without making it perverse. 
That's our world. That's our world. You mean we can't sell a chicken sandwich without making a sexual reference? Every other commercial was something about beer or booze or how you'd be better off. You know, no matter if you just drink this, you're going to be absolutely wonderful. Brainless, but wonderful. It's insane, folks. I'm looking at it, I'm going, you have got to be kidding me. How in the world did we get here? Oh, that's right. That's what it said would happen. And the church is going, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Yes, it does mean something. It means we're getting real close to the return of Jesus. It means I fully expect one day for those clouds to open up and for that trumpet to sound and we're out of here. Because it's, it's a mess. And it's a bigger mess than it's ever been. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him. And at an hour when he's not aware. And will cut him in two and appoint his portion with unbelievers. You need to take stock of that verse. And I won't belabor it because it so plainly speaks. There are an awful lot of people on this earth who call themselves Christians who are not saved. And the way you know it is their life is lived apart from Christ. There's not one thing in their life that you could point to and say, that's the evidence that that person is saved. You don't want to be in that group of people. Frankly, there is no such thing as fire insurance. You're either saved by grace through faith and Jesus Christ is Lord, or you probably ought to take a look at how you got what you call saved. He's saying, look, if you're really mine, you're going to be doing something about it. doesn't mean perfect. doesn't mean you're saved by doing things. It means that if you truly are a child of God, you will not act the way the world does. You'll live a different kind of life. And it's pretty clear that that person is not saved and will appoint him his portion with unbelievers. What's the portion of unbelievers? Hell. Not a popular passage of Scripture. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Now we have gone. Think about these things for a second. How many Christians are beaten up with many stripes because they fail to do what Scripture says they should do? How many people suffer through a divorce? How many people end up in rehab? How many people end up in jail for extortion? How many people end up in the same places that the world ends up because they refuse to do what Scripture says to do? Beaten. Beaten down. But he who did not know. You've heard that oft-repeated phrase, that with knowledge comes responsibility. Here it is. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving stripes. In other words, he didn't know that they were necessarily wrong. Shall be beaten with a few. In other words, there, there is a place that God has mercy on those who are ignorant. 
But it also says that when you know, it's going to cost you. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much is required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask more. And so some closing thoughts. Notice the skepticism here. A couple of things we need to see. There in verse 45. Look, the Lord's delaying this coming. I live however I want. People have been saying that for a very, very, very long time. And in fact, they've gone so far as to start setting dates and then mocking the Lord's return. Interesting to me, when you look at false prophets, we have a we have a number of groups on this earth. We had a whole bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses here in the neighborhood the last few days. I thought it was rather interesting that they would choose to come by here, because obviously we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we don't use their Bible, lovely New Century version. But the Jehovah's Witnesses actually hold the record for the world's number of times that they've predicted the return of the Lord. Um, just to let you know, they've been wrong every single time. So far, uh, ten times they've predicted the return of the Lord. They've been wrong every time. I could have saved them the trouble because the Bible says no one will know the day or the hour. So you just take it at face value. You're not going to know. So the moment someone predicts it, you can automatically know that they don't know. Unless they happen to be an angel. You see, people have been doing this stuff, and then the world goes, see, you guys are a bunch of nuts, because they don't know the difference between a cult, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the real church. And so they confuse the two. Seventh-day Adventists have done the same thing, and so they come up with investigative judgment. We, we didn't get it right, so there's going to be a special judgment. We'll just check it all out and make sure that you're part of us. You guys remember uh, good old Harold Camping? He just recently uh, bit the dust, took his last breath, went home. He predicted the Lord would come back in 1994. That didn't work. And then he did it again in 2011. That didn't work. Then he finally said, oh, well, I meant October instead of March. or what? That didn't work. I'm guessing he now knows when the day is because he's with Jesus. Folks, Jesus is coming, and we don't know when. And just because we don't know when doesn't mean that we stop working. Because these skeptics, those with heretical eschatological views, those that believe in replacement theology, let me get really specific. Ah, we just need to allegorize all that stuff. And, you know, I mean, the church is the Jews, and the Jews are the church, and it's just all, you know, whoever you want it to be. Israel doesn't really matter anymore. Family of God, that's what led to the Holocaust. That's what has led to anti-Semitism. The church is largely responsible for the Jews being persecuted. We need to be really careful what we believe about the return of the Lord. Because if you start to allegorize everything, you've got to throw out about half of the Old Testament. And it's plain face value. Jesus is coming again. First, he's coming for the church. 
And then he's coming with the church. Now, praise God. The promises, the covenants that Israel has, that's the reason for the tribulation. That's why that 70th week is going to be undertaken. And that is exactly why the Lord is coming back at the end of it. To fight the battle of Armageddon, to crush the foe. To put the enemy finally under his foot. There was massive sinfulness then. There's massive sinfulness now. And so in the last couple of verses here, First, you see a false servant. Amen? He's just not even real. Doesn't believe a thing the Bible says. Only reason he comes to church is there's hot chicks. Just being honest. I've actually had guys tell me that. Oh, yeah, I come to your church. Yeah, you're the great-looking girls. Idiot. I usually sit them down and say, you're coming to church for that? I see, you don't fear God? You have no inkling that maybe He actually desires a relationship with you? You're coming for that. Uh-huh. We need to talk a lot. It's a false servant. There's people who pretend to be believers. Sheep, goats. Wheat tares. And God's going to sort them out one day. You don't want to be in that group. There's the forgetful servant. And when you look at the forgetful servant, a lot of it hinges on this. You weren't prepared. You weren't doing anything. You kind of forgot what time it is. Family of God, it is late in the game. I don't know how many of you are baseball fans, but when you get down to the ninth inning, you start running out of pitches, amen? It's like there's two outs, bottom of the ninth, the game is about over, and you got two strikes and no balls, and you're going to maybe get one more swing. We're in the ninth inning. Jesus is coming soon. I don't know how many pitches are left. I know this, not many. How many? I don't know. Don't ask me. I won't give you a number. It's going to be next week, next month, today, before you get home. Could be. He's that close. Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy fulfilled. Israel's back in the land speaking one language. They've been there since 1948. A generation has nearly passed since that time. It's close. Don't forget, don't be a forgetful servant. You don't want the Lord to have to school you at the judgment seat, amen? Because one day we're all going to stand before him. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, by the way. They give an account for the things that you did in this life. You don't want to go, oh, man, I wish I hadn't have done that. How many Christians are, are, are going to be standing there hoping that there's some kind of a crown that they get for longevity? I'm serious. 
I think there are a lot of Christians that think, well, if I just stay saved for a long time, I'll get a... No, it says that he's going to hold you accountable for that. And it's as if you're going to be beaten with stripes. How could you possibly have been here on this earth and done nothing? No reason for a crown for you to throw at Jesus' feet. You see, you don't want to do that. And you also don't want to be the feeble servant who just doesn't know much. So what do we do? We want to be found fabulously faithful. I want to be looking for and hastening the day of the Lord, the great, the coming of a great God and King. Because I do believe He's coming one of these days. And the way things are going, could be before you get home from church. So let's get busy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time this morning. Lord, thank You that, Lord, in all of this, that it, it lies in our hands, God, to be faithful, to be blessed, to be expectant. God, we can this day be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who is faithful to complete these things until the day of Christ Jesus, Lord, that you're looking to do great things in us, and we should be looking to do great things for you. Lord, we know that you're going to take your church out one day, and we surely want to be a part of that group. And Lord, when you come back, you're coming as a conquering king. And Lord, we want to come and rule and reign, as your word says. And so, God, we pray that you'd help us to remember that Jesus is coming soon. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the precious name of our soon-coming King Jesus. Amen.